Hello, everyone. It's great to be with you. I will start by introducing myself. My name is Marcus Yancey. I am counsel in the litigation department of Ropes and Gray in Boston. My practice focuses on shareholder litigation, complex commercial litigation, and securities and blockchain-related related litigation, as well as blockchain-related strategic advice and counseling. I am really excited to be presenting here to you today. I remember the blockchain litigation presentation that the BBA put on six months, maybe a year ago, and thought that was great content. And so Andrew and I thought it made sense to try to piggyback on that and build on some of the developments that have emerged in the intervening period, some of the news, some of the legal changes and challenges that have come up. And hopefully it's interactive. We will definitely take questions as they come up using the Zoom function. There's a button called Q&A, which we have open right now. It's empty on our screens, but as those come through, we'll make a point to pause and address them in real time rather than hoarding them all to the end. We like to keep this interactive. And with that, I'll let Andrew introduce himself as well. Oh, with one caveat, which I'm sure you've all probably heard a million times, which are, these views are my own. I do not speak for my firm and none of this constitutes any legal advice or representation. Please consult with your own lawyer. And I would be glad to speak with anyone afterwards. Thanks, Mark. I um, I also second exactly what Mark just said. These views are my own as well um, and uh, not legal advice. Um, so my name is Andrew Stark. Thank you, everybody, for joining. It's good to be here and good to be with you, Mark. Um, I'm a commercial litigator. Um, I, I worked in big law for several years, and I am a founding member of uh, my firm, Stark Latuka, which is based here in Massachusetts and in New York as well. Um, we're, we're a you know fairly full-service firm. We primarily are a boutique uh, litigation uh, firm, but we uh, handle um, matters, anything from uh, real estate transactions to, uh, to corporate uh, counseling and regulatory compliance. Um, I'm also a, a first-year legal research and writing uh, professor at Suffolk University Law School, um, which I have been doing for several years uh, as well. Um, so again, it's it's great to be here. Thank you very much for taking your afternoon to be with us. Um, so I think without further ado, we can kick this off and um, with a question that I I have for you, Mark, if you're uh, if you don't mind. Great. So. I think the the best way to kick this off here is to ask you, Mark, why do we and should we care about blockchain and cryptocurrency litigation? Great way to set the table here for the conversation. I don't know the backgrounds and previous experiences and interests of the audience on the panel, so I'm going to keep this fairly high level to a broad appeal. I imagine some of us have experience with crypto litigation and some of us may not. But as far as why it matters and why it's timely, particularly now, to have a panel and to raise awareness within litigators in the Boston legal community around blockchain, I, I think a couple things are important to emphasize. One is blockchain is expanding. And if you look at valuations as the only signal of blockchain, that might not be immediately apparent, but valuations can be deceiving. And the current total market cap of prominent cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin or Ethereum or whatnot is not, in many cases, the most telling demonstrator of what's going on on the ground as far as developers who are using blockchain technology. Quite to the contrary, notwithstanding the recent depression in valuations that the cryptocurrency scene has experienced, the ongoing building and ongoing mechanical integration of blockchain technology into a wide range of applications is actually only expanding. And I see that, Andrew sees that on a day-to-day -day basis as new clients, prospective clients, people who ultimately become clients come to us with new ideas, new fascinating applications of blockchain technology in a variety of different contexts. One of them is the context that probably most of us are most familiar with, which is cryptocurrency, exchanging value on a blockchain. We're seeing integration of cryptocurrency functionality within a wide range of contexts 
at an increasingly accelerating rate. There was news last week of how Amazon is integrating blockchain into a lot of its applications. I've been meeting with various industry participants who are fusing metaverse experiences, virtual avatar-based platforms and installments with the ability to, through use of cryptocurrency, participate in in real-life activities. Public companies, private companies are coming to us and talking about how can we accept payment in crypto and what are the regulatory implications around that. And so really, regardless of the industry group of clients that our audience serves, whether it's retail, whether it's finance, whether it's various forms of hard industry, energy, commerce, machine, uh, uh, auto, machine, all of that, everyone is coming up with some system or some approach to integrate cryptocurrency functionality into their processes and their commerce approach, which by its own nature will naturally result in some quantum of cryptocurrency related litigation being spun off. So the folks on this call, on this Zoom, I salute you for being interested in this. This is an area that's developing. This is an area that is going to be accretive to your practice and likely already has become accretive to your practice to have familiarity with. Even beyond the first thing that we think of, cryptocurrency for blockchain application, I would say the other applications, the other more secondary applications are growing even more quickly. Things like the tokenization and fractionalization of real world assets, things like real estate, things like fine wine, things like fancy designer shoes, uh, expensive liquor, all that stuff is being tokenized, is being put in a blockchain format. And for a lot of new high-end commerce, it would be actually the exception to not have someone uh, participating in some level at a with blockchain in those sorts of transactions. Also, equities, debt, all that stuff is becoming tokenized. We're seeing blockchain being used for file storage, blockchain used for supply chain management, notwithstanding some recent bumps in the road with certain shipping applications. Others are still using blockchain and working on how to best leverage blockchain for supply chain management. So industry uh, participants in the stream of commerce, all the way from the very uh, initial origination of a product to the final consumer can have a very clear understanding and awareness of where their goods came from, which is obviously important for anti-human trafficking, anti-money laundering, anti-slavery, and a wide range of other human goods and goals. We also see blockchain getting integrated into the, the metaverse, as I was alluding to earlier. We see athletes, influencers, artists, etc., using blockchain to deploy their content, to monetize their content, and to build their audience and their brand. And we're also seeing blockchain more recently, and this is very fledgling, being integrated into dispute resolution mechanics where participants, instead of allocating a dispute to a private arbitration or just not pre-contracting and allowing a dispute to be reserved for the courts are predetermining that they're going to send their dispute to a private decentralized dispute resolution forum and mechanism that allows disputes to be handled from start to finish, including from an enforceability perspective on the blockchain. So that's just a, an array of various functionalities closing with one that's obviously very near and dear to our hearts as litigators for how we will, might actually be conducting our day-to-day -day mechanics. Yes, we'll still have court proceedings. Yes, we'll still have arbitrations. But And, and this is also important to me. I, I recently wrote a paper on it, which is why I'm harping on it. But the, in the very near future, many of us will start to effect our dispute resolution advocacy and practice through blockchain-based mechanisms. So with all that as a backdrop, it's very timely for us to be focused on this. And in some ways I'm preaching to the choir because we all are here, we know it's important, but it's a big, I view a big part of my role as awareness raising, advocacy, being an ambassador within the legal community for the virtues of blockchain and the virtues of the legal community being aware of how to leverage blockchain. And this presentation is certainly one small part of that.
That's great. That's great, Mark. Thanks very much. Um, so I think we can now turn to, you know, something, a question that I think many might have behind the camera is that the title of this presentation refers to a crypto winter. Um, so can you tell me a little bit about how this is, how is this significant? How is the title significant? Well, as many will know, the, the phrase is a reference to the downturn in valuation in various digital assets over the past nine months or so, as I already initially alluded to. And hopefully, depending on, I guess, whether you're also an investor in blockchain, hopefully we're starting to see a little bit of a thawing of that crypto winter, not unlike for those who are situated in Boston, the warm weather we're experiencing in the middle of winter right now. But the, the past nine months have definitely seen a very significant drop in the valuations of most digital assets. And as that price depression occurs, there's a more arduous fight for value. And those fights are occurring at the business level, but some of those fights are spilling over and taking the form of active litigations and disputes between various investors, participants, developers, and other users of cryptocurrency. So that's why we thought not we, we came up with this title back when the price of Bitcoin was around 16,000. Now it's last I checked around 21,000, but that's still a precipitous drop from the 69,000 all time a high price of Bitcoin. So we're still very much in a crypto winter, even if we might be seeing the end of it. And that price depression augments the need for litigators to be well-versed in this. A related issue is as price depressions continue to have a domino effect, many participants are experiencing significant liquidity crunches. And there are a number of insolvencies, a number of distress situations. We'll get into some of that later on in the presentation. And that, of course, also churns up significant litigation. So that's why we thought it was important as a table setting exercise to focus on that dimension. Thanks, Mark. I guess I have a question for you, Andrew. So this also, I think, goes to a table setting exercise because I think it's a foundational issue that animates and is in the background, or even in some cases, the foreground of a lot of cryptocurrency litigation. And that particular question is, what is cryptocurrency in the eyes of the law? And how would you best unpack that for a judge, for a regulator, for a fellow attorney who's trying to get more steeped in this world? Sure. I mean, that's a, that's a great question. And I'll start the answer by saying that even though it has now been 14 years since the launch of Bitcoin in 2009, uh, courts and litigators, uh, litigants are still waiting for you know the courts and the agencies to resolve uh, this foundational question. Um, you know we have to date no one agency that has exclusive jurisdiction over cryptocurrencies, and we have different agencies with different interpretations of what cryptocurrency and other digital assets constitute. Um, you know, we have seen, particularly in this year, this past year in 2022, that uh, there is this struggle, uh, to, uh, this grapple between the uh, CFTC and the SEC over which agency has uh, authority to govern, to regulate um, digital assets and specifically cryptocurrencies. Um, you know, traditionally, the it has been for several years, the CFTC. CFTC has taken the position that cryptocurrencies are uh, akin to a commodity and thus should be more loosely regulated than what the SEC has a position, position that the SEC has taken lately, which is that cryptocurrencies and other digital assets are akin to traditional stocks and bonds and thus should uh, comply with the securities uh, statutes, including disclosure requirements. Um, but you know, a good example of the court's grapples with the cryptocurrencies classifications is in June of 2022, we saw a ruling uh, from a federal judge in the District of Connecticut in a case called uh, titled uh, Audet versus Frazier, in which the court following a jury verdict found so there was a jury verdict that found that digital currency, one known as Paycoin in this case, did not qualify as a security under uh, the well-known Howey test. And following the jury verdict, the court actually um, overturned the verdict and rejected the conclusion, uh, which was done by one of the first juries in the country to consider the question 
of whether the cryptocurrency, this particular coin, constituted a security. And the court found that it was against the weight of evidence for to uh, to hold that or to find uh, my apologies that the cryptocurrency was not a common enterprise or that ex- there were no expected profits that would be derived from the efforts of others. Um, so despite this grapple between the courts and the federal regulatory agencies, there is one thing that is certain uh, that we are certain of, and that's the foundational feature of crypto. Uh, transfers on the black on the blockchain, which is that they are um, transfers that are completely irreversible, uh, and they're impractical to reverse. And as as many of you, or we all know that the only way to claw back the transfer of a digital asset once it hits the blockchain is for the transferee to voluntarily return uh, the asset to the transferor. Um, this I have seen in some of the cases that I have litigated uh, as a is a foundational uh, aspect of crypto, and it's one that most people, even if they're not uh, incredibly familiar with crypto, are aware of. Um, that said, as the market, as as you alluded to earlier, very well, Mark, is the uh, the market for cryptocurrencies has expanded significantly lately, and the value of um, the market has declined. Uh, I was reading the other day approximately uh, that the market decline has been approximately 64% in 2022. Um, in light of these uh, these 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 uh, two variables, the, the number of enforcement actions and private litigation will continue to soar. Um, and this is going to allow courts, legislatures, uh, and regulators to continue to figure out exactly how to classify uh, these digital assets. Makes sense. As you were talking, I was thinking about a recent panel that I observed where a former commissioner, they were either commissioner or they were a senior staff person within a commissioner's office on the CFTC, made a very simple but fundamental point, which is he made an analogy between something like Bitcoin and cattle. And he said, the CFTC doesn't regulate the sale of one cow from one farmer to another. But what the CFTC does regulate is cattle futures, cattle derivatives, and similar products. And oh, by the way, if it were a million cows from one farmer or from one massive meat producer to another, the CFTC also wouldn't regulate that. And in the same way, the sale of spot Bitcoin, even we tend to think of the CFTC as, okay, that's the default for digital assets. But if it's a non-future, non-derivative, non-financial instrument type of transaction in an underlying digital asset, the CFTC arguably doesn't even have jurisdiction over that. So the, the picture of where do these digital assets fall within the regulatory regime, it only gets murkier in some respects, the more you peel back the onion. So with that somewhat troublesome setup, I'd like to dig a little deeper, Andrew. How, how do you think from your view of the landscape, cryptocurrency fits within the existing regulatory framework? Oh, that's a great question. I mean, I at this point, I would say quite frankly that it doesn't really. Um, you know, the U.S. crypto industry is currently stuck in this sort of limbo without regulatory clarity. Um, we just discussed that you know no one agency right now has exclusive jurisdiction and, over cryptocurrencies, and the agencies, such as you know the two prominent ones that are involved in this space right now, is the SEC and the CFTC have different interpretations of what cryptocurrency and other digital assets constitute. Um, I, I was I was reading the other day and I and I and I made sure that to quote it here that there was this, this great quote from uh, SEC chair Gary Gensler um, as he recognized in 2021 he said quote large right now large parts of the field of crypto are sitting astride from and not operating within the regulatory framework that protects investors and consumers, guards against illicit activities, ensures uh, financial stability, and yes, even protects national security. Um, And we saw continuously in 2022 that the SEC and the CFTC made public statements in which they 
uh, continued to essentially fight for, and um, I, uh, as it was eloquently once said, regulatory primacy uh, over over the cryptocurrency and the digital assets. Um, both agencies have added significant um, staffing to their digital asset teams, in addition to making these public statements. Um, and uh, uh, SEC um, Chairman Gensler has repeatedly stated uh, publicly that the SEC has authority over cryptocurrencies and has pushed companies to comply with securities laws, claiming that most digital tokens are, in fact, securities. Um, now, you know, we know that, of course, securities and commodities are governed by different statutes, right? Different regulations with different disclosure requirements. Um regulated by different agencies operating in different markets. So, you know, this difference, of course, affects buyers and sellers and investors. And without this regulatory clarity, I think that crypto will continue to live in this limbo, um, which we'll talk about a little bit in, in a little more detail shortly, that I think that I think this year will be a big year for that clarity uh, pursuant to um, a recent executive order from President Biden. Um, but I think a good example of um, the you know the the murkiness here is the SEC's push in 2022, the end of 2021 into 2022, um, for regulatory authority in its in, uh, enforcement actions against um, crypto lending and borrowing platforms such as New Jersey-based BlockFi, um, in which the SEC took the position that crypto interest-bearing accounts such as these interest accounts that BlockFi um, um, uh, based its business model on are securities and thus unregistered ones. Um, as many of you know, these interest accounts allowed users to deposit cryptocurrency into an interest earning account. And companies like BlockFi would then use the deposits to make loans to institutional clients, earning interest on those loans, and then a portion of the interest would be paid back to the users who initially deposited the crypto in the form of fairly high um, interest payments, specific, especially at a time where interest rates were quite low. Um, following, you know, very soon into the enforcement action and the charges brought by the SEC, BlockFi ended up settling the charges brought against it in February 2022, agreeing to pay uh, $100 million in penalties and also to pursue registration of its crypto lending products. Um, so I think this year is is really going to be the true litmus test to see where the uh, where the government is going to go here, um, because right now I don't think we have uh, we certainly don't have enough, and we don't even really have any clarity over which uh, regular which agencies um, govern digital assets. Makes sense. With that backdrop, then, and you already began to allude to it with the. President Biden executive order, but what do you see as the key new developments on the horizon to try to enhance the landscape regarding government regulation of the blockchain sphere? So as as, as many of us know, in it was in March of 2022. Uh, so we're coming up on a year now. Uh, President Biden signed an executive order, which was called the Ensuring Responsible Development of Digital Assets. Um, this executive order was uh, most certainly an acknowledgement by the federal government that cryptocurrency and other digital assets are they're here to stay and that the U.S. should um, harness the benefits while controlling risks. And uh, importantly, this order tasked nearly every federal agency and regulatory body to produce reports and recommendations. Um related to these objectives. So I think that this year we will have a better sense of what lies ahead um, for cryptocurrency and other digital asset regulations once these reports are published. Um, I hope, as I have seen in some um, in, in, in some speeches by the uh, by the CFTC and the SEC, that there will be more collaboration and cooperation in terms of what parts of digital assets will these agencies govern, right? Are we talking about just coins? Are we talking about crypto lending and borrowing investment um, products? I mean, as you you discussed at the beginning of our of our program, the 
blockchain digital assets is, is, is so pervasive in our society right now that I think it, it really does depend on how it is used and how it is housed, right? And, and that matters. You can't just take one swath and one broad interpretation and just sort of, you know, uh, claim authority over all of digital assets. Yeah, and I think your comments underscore a latent theme that infects or affects a lot of this dialogue, which is normally in America when we think about, okay, what is the regulatory framework? There's a maybe clear, but at least understood and defined legislative framework. So the FDA doesn't just operate in a vacuum, it operates pursuant to an enabling statute that gives the FDA authority, defines its sphere of influence, defines its authority, and then gives it the tools and resources to effectuate its mission and goal, again, as linked back to the statute. In the United States, and by the way, the United States, not to get too far afield, but the United States is in some ways different from other jurisdictions that do have a very clearly defined legislative framework that was adopted in recent years in response to the development of blockchain technology that either appoints a specific regulator for digital assets or very clearly folds in to an existing regulator's purview responsibility for digital assets writ large. So the United States doesn't have that at a legislative level. And so, yes, the Biden administration's executive order should be useful. And maybe in some ways, the, the fee, there will be a positive feedback loop and that regulators will say, this is what we would like to see happen for our domain. And then that will inform the Congress right. and will allow them to put forward legislation that aligns with what regulators need. Well, of course, also being sensitive to their constituents, the people. But I think it's it underscores that we're still living in a bit of a gray area. And it's not just the fault of the regulators. Maybe it's nobody's fault, but it's not just a function of regulatory uncertainty. You have to go one layer back and realize that we're also operating in a, in a context of legislative uncertainty. That's exactly right. Very well said. Um, so I think this year, I think this is going to be a big year and we will, we, uh, I'm very excited to see exactly what type of guidance we'll receive. Um, so uh, I have, a, I have, you know, turning to a question for you, Mark, um, from your perspective, um, what are the key categories of blockchain litigation? And could you provide some examples of these key categories? Yeah, happy to. So bu buckle in, audience. And I will also say this is this could be a good opportunity. We're about midway through the conversation. This could be a good opportunity to throw up any questions that have emerged over the first half, and we'll try to address them in the second half. But yeah, happy to go through an overview, and I'll try to keep it as succinct and distilled as possible, because we could literally be here all day. As far as a taxonomy of blockchain litigation, I think a very simple way to organize it at, at a first level priority is differentiating between government actions and private litigation. Now, this backdrop of what is the regulatory architecture, what is the legislative scheme, that is not just relevant to the government litigation, although it might be uh, highly relevant to that government litigation, but it really informs and affects all spheres of litigation, but let me just give a quick breakdown. So within government litigation, and I'll, and I'll talk about categories and try to sprinkle in a couple examples here and there if I can. So within government litigation, I like to break up the categories by regulator, DOG, DOJ, SEC, CFTC, and just to dwell a little bit within each of those and a few others. So the Department of Justice has been incredibly active in enforcing the criminal laws as applied to crypto. And I think it's a really important wake-up call for lawyers who are servicing the blockchain industry to be sensitized. Now, we don't all practice criminal law day-to-day. -day. In fact, criminal law probably constitutes 10 to 20% of my practice. But as general blockchain enthusiasts and lit litigators and attorneys familiar with the space, it's important to be aware of these risks because we're, as we're advising clients, these are background 
really significant ramifications for folks who trip up. And I've I've literally had conversations with clients and prospective clients where they'll say things like, oh, well, this isn't subject to insert regulator name purview. <laughs> and, and you have to be, just as we are in other contexts with clients, but you have to be very forceful, polite, but also forceful and say, you're wrong. Let me explain to you why. And being armed with some of these examples can help charge, supercharge those conversations and make you really efficacious with clients. So within the DOJ, and this is all just in over the past 12 months, the DOJ instituted an indictment and prosecution against individuals who worked at Coinbase, who were allegedly trading on information around certain digital assets that were about to be listed by Coinbase and were profiting allegedly by buying those digital assets before they got listed on Coinbase and then selling those digital assets after a spike in the pricing around those assets associated with their listing on Coinbase. And that prosecution has been going on for a while. I think I saw in the news that one of the individuals was recently sentenced and was very remorseful and described the mistakes that they had made. But that's an example of where there might be a blind spot. Now, I don't think most of our clients are out there thinking they can get away with insider trading, but it does go to a kind of fundamental issue around going back to what Andrew was talking about, the nature of digital assets, because some people might think, oh, well, if it's not a security, it can't be insider traded. And I think the SEC would have something to say about that. In fact, the SEC instituted a parallel enforcement proceeding against the same individuals at issue in the DOJ proceeding and challenge their conduct with respect to certain, not all, but certain of the digital assets in which they had traded on the basis that those digital assets constituted securities. Moreover, insider trading might not be called by that name. It could be construed as wire fraud or something else that's more broadly applicable, irrespective of whether the thing that is being traded in is a security. Another DOJ indictment that also is consistent with that theme, the DOJ recently prosecuted an individual who worked at OpenSea, which for those who aren't familiar, is an NFT trading platform, probably the leading non-fungible token trading platform. Similar alleged fact pattern there. The person was an insider, was aware of what non-fungible tokens were about to be listed on the home or landing page of that virtual marketplace and was able to buy certain of those digital assets and then experience allegedly an influx or a fluctuation, an upward fluctuation in pricing and achieve value through that mechanism. Just today, shifting gears slightly, the DOJ announced an international prosecution of the founder of a cryptocurrency exchange named Bitslato, which I have never transacted on and think most people in our sphere don't typically transact on. But some folks, according to the complaint, who are trying to who were trying to use that exchange for nefarious purposes were involved in that exchange. And according to the indictment, there was an, a $700 million cumulative money laundering operation that was effectuated through that exchange. So the, the DOJ's prosecution isn't limited, of course, to insider trading. It runs the gamut and in that case focuses on anti-money laundering violations. Of course, I think I think we've actually done a pretty good job, Andrew, of getting through a halfway through a crypto litigation presentation and not talked about FTX, at least not in detail. But I think now would be an appropriate time to reference what we've all seen in the news very significantly over the past couple of months, uh, the FTX downfall, if you will. And related to that, there was the recent indictment of not only the founder, Sam Bankman-Fried, but also the uh, agreed to plea agreements with some of the other principal individuals within FTX and its related hedge fund, Alameda. And there, the allegations focus around the disclosures that were made to investors, both investors who were using the exchange, as well as investors who were providing capital to the exchange uh, through equity securities. And 
false, allegedly false disclosures made to those sets of investors through those disclosures. So the 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 DOJ's enforcement authority is certainly quite broad. It's very active. It had the the DOJ has dedicated a bunch of resources to ensuring adequate enforcement and protection uh, against unlawful activities in the crypto space. And we're expected to see that uh, only continuing and perhaps even increasing. Pick up the pace here. The SEC also is quite active, and we've alluded to some of their enforcement actions. The CFTC, one interesting, so, so the CFTC is another very active enforcer. And one interesting recent case is by the CFTC against a DAO, a decentralized autonomous organization, which is an organization of interests that operates through lines of code. It could resemble something like a corporation or an LLC, but instead of using more traditional legal superstructures and architecture, the community is held together and the rules of the community are generated through lines of code that all participants agree to by agreeing to own an interest in that decentralized autonomous organization or DAO. And there was a particular DAO called Uki DAO was previously known as BZX DAO, and that was a DAO that was engaged in decentralized finance or DeFi applications and products. And through Uki DAO or BZX DAO, users could get exposure to certain derivatives and certain financial products. And the CFTC stepped in a couple months ago and said, "This is all supposed to be subject to CFTC." regulations and CFTC rules, and none of this is being run through those processes. And so this operation is improper, and we're going to initiate enforcement proceedings against that. And that is, I wouldn't say, a very common fact pattern that we've seen the CFTC take action in, but might be, who knows, the beginning of an emerging trend there. You also have the Department of Treasury that has its own enforcement arm, and in particular, when it comes to bank secrecy laws and anti-money laundering requirements, to the extent those aren't followed, the Department of Treasury has been fairly active in enforcement there. You have the Federal Trade Commission, which is designed to protect consumers and which has been active against crypto developers and protocols and participants to the extent consumer rights and consumer protection interests are at issue. FINRA has taken certain actions, FINRA, the self-regulated securities organization, has taken certain actions, enforcement actions in the crypto environment. And you're also even seeing the, still within the federal gamut, the Federal Reserve involved in certain litigation. There's currently pending, I think in the federal district court for the District of Wyoming, an action by a crypto bank called Custodia Bank, which is seeking to achieve for sake of simplicity, equal treatment akin to more traditional banks within the Federal Reserve's organization, and the Federal Reserve views it differently. And so those two parties are hashing it out. So that's not so much an enforcement proceeding, but is still a proceeding that tests the limits and will shape the contours of the regulatory architecture, at least for crypto-focused banks. Obviously, you can't leave out the state governments. And so each of the states have their own attorneys general, their own securities enforcers, which have been quite active, including in specific states. There's been quite a big degree, especially within the securities, the state-focused securities regulators of activity against uh, in, uh, industry participants who the regulators say aren't uh, following laws, especially when it comes to registration with the regulators of digital assets that they view to be securities. I uh, I can keep going just with a briefly touching on some private litigation, which is actually where I spend sure. more of my time as compared to government litigation. We're just as far as taxonomy and examples, we're seeing a lot of class action litigation, and that class action is against that. Those class actions are against crypto developers, crypto protocols, crypto platforms, crypto exchanges. Really, it runs the gamut. Anyone who is offering any sort of product through which a consumer could interact, we're seeing a very large degree of 
class actions against all those participants, including their officers, directors, and affiliated individuals and organizations. Those take the form of securities class actions, which will necessarily include a series of allegations that the digital asset constitutes a security in order to trigger applicability of the securities laws. Those could include derivative actions where you wouldn't have to allege anything like that. It's just a traditional you, the directors, did something bad. I'm a shareholder in this company. And so it's applying very traditional notions of fiduciary duty, but layered through a blockchain application and nuanced questions arise around what is the proper spheres and application and implementation of fiduciary duties in a blockchain context. We're seeing that arise fairly frequently. And then consumer fraud and consumer protection class actions for circumstances where maybe the plaintiff doesn't want to have to allege that a digital asset constitutes a security, but it's the same thematic orientation. I bought something in the nature of a digital asset product or service from this provider, and it didn't pan out, and I want to be protected, and I want to make sure that I'm made whole from a monetary perspective. A somewhat headlining, headline-grabbing ancillary field of crypto litigation is class actions against celebrities and promoters of crypto platforms and various digital assets or digital asset investment protocols and mechanisms. The theory there is fairly novel in the sense that, for example, Tom Brady, to use a formerly local example, Tom Brady was sued in connection with his promotion and endorsement and advertisements on behalf of FTX. Now, Tom Brady, not that I have any direct involvement, of course, or I wouldn't be talking about it, but I imagine that he's probably saying, you're suing me? I, I Tom Brady, was an FTX investor. So he actually has, depending on how the bankruptcy proceeds, uh, ex potential exposure to lose a lot of money because he's equity in the FTX bankruptcy. And as we know, equity goes last. But at the same time, he's being sued by individuals saying, well, I became a FTX customer because I saw the advertisements by Tom Brady or Larry David or Giselle Bündchen or a wide range of other celebrities and promoters. The, the, the theory is a little squishy and we, 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 I'm gonna be following very closely the motion to dismiss briefing and ultimately when decisions start to come out, I, I'm not gonna telegraph which way I think those cases should come out, but I, I think it's interesting that those cases are being prosecuted and it's certainly a risk area for many of our clients to the extent, and I've had clients come to me and say, oh yeah, we're we're thinking about partnering. We we may maybe we're a sports organization, or maybe we're a, some kind of organization with some other public profile, and we're thinking about partnering with this cryptocurrency or with this protocol or this potential investment profile uh, investment platform. And they will want to understand what is our legal exposure if we get a line there. In some ways, it's not completely different from other scenarios where. You use celebrity endorsements, but it's it's reaching a very tipping point, a very clear tipping point in the crypto context, and likely the law that develops in the crypto context here will be applied external to the crypto context because it's the bleeding edge, at least as far as I can see. A couple other categories, and then I'll stop. We we see a lot of disputes between participants in the crypto industry. Maybe two developers get together, and the there's a a lead developer who maybe owns a majority of interest in the application that's being developed. And then there's a secondary developer who maybe has a minority interest. And then as, again, the fact patterns aren't completely remote from standard business disputes. Those two partners have some kind of a falling out. And lo and behold, the minority developer wasn't going to be paid in fiat. They were going to be paid in some coin that was set to unlock according to some arcane schedule. And now the fight is before a judge who may or may not have familiarity with blockchain concepts around what are the rights associated with that interest? When do they spring into effect? How does the law apply traditional notions of good faith and fair dealing and breach of contract principles within maybe a, a smart contract where it's not even a signed document that a court could read, but is simply lines of code that are self-executing. And, and those, uh, those litigations are fascinating to watch. We also have IP disputes. A lot of 
blockchain functionality is being implemented in contexts where IP rights are either assumed or someone thinks they're assumed, and then fights will emerge around, well, I bought this NFT. Doesn't this NFT give me the right to use the underlying content and derivative applications and maybe monetize for my own benefit or use for my own streams of commerce the underlying IP associated with this NFT? And the short answer is maybe not. And I'd be happy to talk after with anyone who wants to go in more detail there. And then lastly, bankruptcy litigation, which we've all seen in the headlines quite a bit. I I think um, given time, Andrew, I, I'm going to pivot to maybe asking you some questions because I don't want to uh, shortchange anything. But uh, again, invite to the audience if there are any questions that anyone wants to interpose while we're going through some of our content here. Uh, I would be really fascinated to hear, Andrew, if you could give an example of a blockchain case that you recently litigated and how you navigated it, maybe some lessons learned or thematic considerations that emerged from it. Sure, sure. Um, so I have a I have an interesting cryptocurrency case um, that's still pending. Um, it's against a crypto uh, lending company, um, which I actually spoke about earlier uh, called BlockFi. Uh, the case is still pending, um, but it's currently stayed as a result of the automatic uh, stay um, imposed on the courts um, due to uh, BlockFi's recent Chapter 11 restructuring filing, um, which, as as many of you know, uh, came uh, almost immediately after the collapse of, collapse of FTX because there were significant talks um, between uh, leadership of FTX and BlockFi about um a, a lifeline loan um, to be able to help uh, BlockFi uh, stay afloat. And of course that fell through um, um, upon the fall of FTX. Um, so the case that I have interestingly, and it's the reason why I bring this case up is that it's, I want to talk about, you know, we've talked so far about um, the regulatory, statutory, and common law ambiguity about what exactly is crypto and other digital assets. What do they constitute? Who has authority over um, digital assets? And be, in light of this this murky landscape, um, I think it's really important to understand, recognize, and dive into the fact that it's the courts will continue to apply. Uh, traditional principles of law under statutory uh, schemes, regulatory schemes, and common law. Um, and in the particular case that I have involved traditional common law principles of conversion and of negligence and uh, even promissory estoppel. And uh, the facts were, in, uh, facts involved, if, if any of you are aware of this, that in May of 2021, uh, BlockFi, um, created a sort of fiasco for itself by um, sending out, which it, we found out later, according to BlockFi, was accidental, um, large amounts of uh, bonus payments to its customers under the form of a promotion. Um, uh, BlockFi later claimed that instead of sending um, U.S. dollars to its customers who invested with it um, by opening up these BlockFi interest-bearing uh, accounts, it sent Bitcoin. Um, unfortunately, you know, because litigation stayed, we never got to understand um, exactly how this happened. But long story short is uh, our client uh, one day uh, checked his phone and his email and received uh, an email and an application alert that said, congratulations, you have been uh, transferred uh, 329 Bitcoin um, as a bonus payment for uh, participating in BlockFi's promotional event. Um, now, at the, at the time that my client received this promotional payment, you know, he essentially believed that he had won some sort of lottery. And many of you recall that in May of 2021, Bitcoin was worth $64,000 a coin, uh, is now hovering around 21 or so. But that was the, you know, that was the time right around the high of $69,000 a coin. So we're talking about a significant amount of money. Now, at the time my client received this, uh, this notification, um, and the um, and the emails and the app alerts. Um, my client uh, uh, 
primed with the characterization of the deposit and understanding, as many crypto investors do, uh, understand that Bitcoin and other crypto transfers are irreversible, believe that the Bitcoins now belong to him. And in the time between BlockFi um, ended up alerting the public and its customers that this um, that this uh, transfer was uh, allegedly a, a mistake, our client um, had actually committed these digital assets to a third party in exchange for equity in the company. Um, and it was only after this commitment had been made that um, our client discovered or was at least informed by BlockFi that the um, 329 Bitcoin was supposed to be $329, which of course, as you can imagine, is a significant discrepancy. Um, now, and at the time, our, um, as many uh, people, even some uh, many investors are not aware that um, in order to get around the irreversible nature of a blockchain transaction, um, Platforms and exchanges, crypto platforms and exchanges will escrow these transfers while they QC the transfers for a period of time. Um, for some reason, which we 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 had not we have not figured out yet, that the, our client was uh, was transferred uh, about eighteen Bitcoin before BlockFi clawed back three hundred eleven. So three eighteen of it was actually not put um, uh, on the blockchain. I mean, was put on the blockchain, and so our client retained us to file a lawsuit in the U.S. District Court in New Jersey to compel BlockFi to return the Bitcoin, and. Um, Interestingly enough, and this is why I stress that we need to really dive into each jurisdiction's common law and statutory and existing regulatory uh, schemes to understand what traditional uh, legal principles will apply to this new and novel um, you know, form of payment, is that in New Jersey, the law on conversion, unlike in Massachusetts, actually provides an exception to a uh, transferee's ability to uh, maintain and possession of property that was uh, supposedly um, uh, transferred to it uh, inadvertently. And in that, in Massachusetts, once a transferor accidentally sends uh, property in some way or form to another upon demand, the transferee has a duty, uh, has a legal obligation to return the funds. But in New Jersey, there is case law that states that when someone accidentally transfers funds or securities to another, the transferee then subsequently incurs liabilities and obligations that they may not have otherwise uh, incurred as a result of or but for the transfer, that unjust enrichment should not be a remedy to receive the funds. Um, so it was an interesting um, legal theory and uh, jurisdiction to be able to bring uh, the lawsuit. Um, BlockFi, rather than answer, they moved to dismiss the action. And the issue in front of the judge essentially became quite simple, was that, you know, is was it reasonable? Can any person, was it reasonable for any person to look at this promotion, to look at the alerts and to have the time period between the uh, the actual deposit and the clawback and the uh, the subsequent notice that the um, that the transfer was uh, was inadvertent was it reasonable for a person to believe that uh, as a matter of law that the that the transfer was intentional and not a mistake? Um, the lessons I learned from that case um, was that it, it illustrated to me that in in the time we were in front of the judge that when you're in front of a court that doesn't have authority in the form of statutes and regulations and case law specific to digital assets, you need to do as much educating to the judge uh, about digital assets and about the core fundamental principles and about you know the facts of your case and why your client believed what they did and why it was reasonable at the motion to dismiss phase as much as you need to do, uh, as much as you need to advocate. Uh, in front of the judge. Um, so we served as educators in addition to advocates. And um, now, unfortunately, the timing of the motion to dismiss, we haven't received a, a, um, a decision because BlockFi um, um, inevitably filed a Chapter 11 petition for bankruptcy. So we're in a stay. And of course, the bankruptcy will will proceed for quite some time. Um, so stay tuned, as, as we all will. Um, but that was a you know a good case. I think a good example to show how to navigate and you know what what principles are applying here. Um, 
I know we're getting close to running out of time, um, uh, Mark, but I would, you know, I would love to hear, you know, just kind of put that back on you and, and ask you, uh, what are some, you know, what's a good example of a case or a couple of cases, however you want to frame it in the little time that we have left that you've been working on. Will do. And before I get to that, I want to answer a question that came in from an audience member. Most projects are run by anonymous developers, marketers, developers or marketers who use pseudonyms on Telegram, Discord, or Twitter to communicate. What are the strategies you use to identify those responsible parties in a litigation? That's a fantastic question. And I think the answer to it actually is a pretty good segue from what Andrew was just talking about as far as reasonableness and practicality. So two high-level reactions there. One of them is, yes, most of the community, and it sounds like the audience member is pretty steeped in this sphere and so has an awareness of how a lot of the community develop, the community engagements exist and how ideas get built. Much of that is exactly, it's in Twitter. You go, anytime I log on to Twitter, there will be four or five open Twitter spaces where they're discussing various blockchain issues. And I, if I have a few moments, will join and sometimes I'll get asked to present out of the blue and it's always a fun time. And so we're all operating behind avatars and many people, unlike myself, I use my name, but many people don't use their real name in these settings. And I've had clients who or prospective clients who want to meet with me, but say they'll only do it as an avatar. So we'll be in a Zoom like this, but instead of my face, I'll see some disembodied avatar. So that is exactly right as far as the context in which a lot of these blockchain ideas are developed. I will say, I think the, the two high-level reactions are, one, most people, even if the initial interaction is purely virtual, will eventually have some sort of a real-life interaction. So, for example, and I'll use, an, I'll use a, a protocol that I already referenced, BZX or UkiDAO. In that case, there were these founders who all of their public facing personas were anonymized. But once you dig a little under the surface, there were people in the know who knew who those individuals were and they were identified. And it, it's relevant to a, a practical question that is emanating from your, from your query, which is, for example, how do you serve someone? How do you serve for example, a DAO, which is just this decentralized autonomous organization. It doesn't have a registered agent or oftentimes, depending on whether it has a legal superstructure around it, will not have a registered agent for service of process. Well, a judge addressed this very question in a decision that came out a couple of weeks ago and I read when it came down. The Some of the users of UkiDAO, after the DAO had experienced a hack that resulted in loss, significant loss to many of the users, initiated a suit. So they filed the suit. That's easy. But how do you serve them? And they knew who the principals were, but didn't know how to find them or where to find them, i.e. there's no registered agent for service of process. But they did know that the DAO had a chat box. And so they asked for authorization to serve the DAO by essentially appending the complaint to a message that was then sent on the chat box. And initially the judge approved that form of service. Everybody, not everybody, many people were up in arms about that, saying this is absolutely contrary to the spirit of blockchain. There were a number of amici briefs that were put in by various interested parties. And so the judge said, okay, I'll reconsider my motion. Uh, my decision. And like I said, a couple of weeks ago, came out with a decision on the motion for reconsideration and the judge de declined to waiver. And now in a very detailed reasoning, extrapolated on why service through the chat box, well novel, well unique, was sufficient service under the constitution and the law. And the judge actually said, in this case, the there's very clear corroboration that notice, which is the touchstone of service, was accomplished because after the complaint was appended through the chat box feature, feature you saw, because the chat box is public, other participants in the DAO, including the individuals who were identified as the principals of the DAO, talking about the fact of service, talking about the suit, talking about implications of the suit, and 
the judge used that amongst a bunch of other criteria, as well as comparison to notice by publication, where sometimes if you just publish something in the newspaper, that suffices. The judge used all those quantum of issues to confirm that it was appropriate to affect service via that method. Uh, we're running short on time, but thank you for this additional question. What are your suggestions to stay ahead of the battle? Well, for my, and if anyone needs to leave, absolutely feel free, but I want to answer this question. The, the way I think about it is keeping abreast of recent developments. And so I subscribe to a number of publications. A num some of them are within subscriptions that my firm has, but some of them are free, like Blockworks. So all you need is an email address. You can sign up for Blockworks, and it has a bunch of updates on industry information. For those who are at firms and have, have resources, I subscribe to any Anytime a blockchain litigation is filed, so if the word blockchain comes up in a new complaint, I get an alert. And do I read every single one of them? No. But do I scan it to assess whether it's potentially relevant to my practice? Absolutely. And then there are a bunch of firms that have periodic publications. Self-interested plug here. Ropes actually has one. It's called Crypto Quarterly. You can subscribe to it and get updates on recent developments over the prior quarter. And to the person, I know you're anonymous, but if you want to reach out to me, I'm happy to have a deeper dive on how to stay abreast. Unfortunately, we're not able to get to all the questions that came through principally at the end. And I want to be respectful of time. But I will say on, on my own behalf, and I think I speak for Andrew, we're really grateful to have this time to spend an hour with you this afternoon. This is a passion of mine. I know it's a passion of Andrew's. And it's a passion of yours. You just want to talk shop, maybe talk cross referrals, talk about ways to expand your practice in this area. And also, again, how to get smart. Hit me up. I'm at Ropes. You can find my bio. And uh, same for Andrew at Stark Watuka. Likewise. Thanks. Thanks very much, everybody. I, I wholeheartedly reiterate what Mark just said. And thank you, everybody, for taking uh, taking your Wednesday afternoon with us. And um, if anybody has any questions, we'd be happy to speak. Take care, everyone. Thank you, everybody. Uh, just so much. Uh, just thank you so much to our panelists for speaking today. And thank you so much to our audience for joining us. Um, have a wonderful afternoon, everyone. Thank you, everybody.